Thanks for checking out the Lakeshore Podcast. If this is your first time listening with us, we want you to know God loves you. We want for your hope in Jesus to be renewed and for your faith to come to life. Wherever you are joining us from, we hope this message encourages you. all of that, but, uh, but we should be keeping up to date. Jesus said, whatever you do, be sober to it. Be aware. Don't, don't be asleep. Recognize this is what's happening. But listen, don't be afraid. Not even for, I'm not saying fear doesn't come. Some stuff happens, kind of takes your breath away, right? Or just sinks you like, oh, not again. But don't be afraid. Don't be distracted. Certainly don't be deceived. Be wide-eyed and totally awake because Jesus is still moving and, and, uh, and, and the things that he promised are still true. But when you think about these two big time frames in history, I'm oversimplifying, they're not like that much different than when Jesus first came. They're more intense, they're closer together because we're closer to the end, but they're not really that different, right? At that time, darkness was ruling the earth. Uh, the spirit, the life of God had not been prominent for 400 years And then all of a sudden, Jesus shows up. And here's how the Gospel of John, chapter 1, here's how it describes it. It says that Jesus brought life, and this life was the light to mankind. And verse 5 continues, and we're we're upgrading 2,000 years later. This is still true. The light still shines in the darkness, and the darkness has never, ever, ever been able to put it out, never will be able to. The darker it gets, the more the light of God's truth, of his promise, of his faithfulness, of the, of, of the strength that he's given us shines bright. And we begin to stand up and kind of shake ourselves and say, let's just believe God and watch God do what he said. Well, this is the final in-person message in this series. And we've, been, we've titled it, A Weary World Rejoices, Finding This Thrill of Hope That Jesus Brings. And, and we kind of took it off of, you know, Spencer was, was praying about and looking at this Christmas Eve service, and he, he felt stirred by a line in that Christmas carol, O Holy Night, where it says, uh, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. And he said, man, I just feel like that's right where we're at. And as we began to talk, boy, we rallied around that, and we said, I think you're on to something. And so we're looking at some of the characters in, in the Christmas story and some of the facts about the Christmas story. Now, here's what I can promise. Some of these are very familiar, but some of these you, you may not have ever heard of before. It's just not part of the very simple, traditional narrative that we see on the Hallmark cards. And, you know, we, we kind of sing about it in the carols. But, but this, is, this is truth, and it brings great insight, especially in this last season. And so we're doing this so we can rediscover Bible hope. And remember, that's not wishful thinking. That's not even just optimism. Bible hope is an expectation that's based on a promise that God made. So you know what you're going to do when God says, I promise you, I will meet all your needs according to your riches and glory. And like, oh, okay. Well, I don't know how he's going to do it, but my expectation is God's going to do what he promised he would do. That's Bible hope. It's a picture. It's a snapshot. That's what God said. That's what I'm looking at and shooting for because he promised he would do that. Well, today we're going to look in Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to look at Joseph. And let me phrase it this way. We're going to look at Joseph as the one that God chose to be Jesus's foster father. That's kind of a big deal, right? If he's the son of God and he's going to be the savior of the world, Do you think that God would put some forethought into what home he placed Jesus in? 
Now, we, we already studied about Mary, but who was the foster father? Who, who was not the biological father, but who was the father that would set the example in the, all of the upbringing years that Jesus would need while Jesus is being shaped from the inside out, from the outside in, so that he could become the savior of the world. And some people right away say, well, you know, he's a sovereign God. That, that was God's selection. That was God's choice. Well, I won't argue with you, but it, it's way too simple because some people say, well, no one really knows. You know, that's kind of the mystery of God. He seems to like some people better and not other people. He seems to favor some people and do really great things for them, but not really other people. And the problem with that is it completely defies everything the Bible says about the character of God and everything the Bible says about the principles of of the Word of God about how we watch things progress in our life. For example, we've already read this in this study, but 2 Chronicles 16.9 says this, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Well, if you can understand what it means to have a heart loyal to God, then here's what it means. God's scanning the whole earth, and all of a sudden he'll see you, and he'll say, yeah, let let me, I want to look at this person. What's going on there? And God is anxious to show himself strong, to show himself, you know, obviously this is way out of the ordinary, just because your heart was loyal to him. But see, people think, well, you know, but God just does that whenever. No, God does that whenever he sees someone whose heart's loyal to him. Not only that, listen to, listen to Luke. Now, Jesus actually taught this one. Luke 16, verse 10 says, He who is faithful in what is least is also faithful in much. And he goes to the other side. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in what is must. Well, every employer... Every lead person in a role knows that's true. You don't take the guy or the gal who's the least dependable, who does the shoddiest work, who's always cutting corners and say, yeah, let's promote them. You never do that. You look for the person who's doing the best job, the most consistent job, maybe not the brightest bulb in the batch, but boy, you can depend on them every single time. Those are the people that you're choosing, and this is what the Bible says. Verse 11 says, Therefore, if you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, then who will commit to your trust the true riches? Well, we, we've got some principles. This is just a couple, but they're all over from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God doesn't do random selection stuff. God's watching. God's giving opportunity. God's putting you in situations that will help you to grow and to stretch and to to widen and to deepen your life so that he can choose you to do something that's wonderful in your life. But there's a lot of people, they just won't make any any effort at all. And they're just saying, well, if someone would just give me a chance, (laughs) well, if you would just apply yourself, then someone would give you a chance. If you begin to get back to the things that the Bible says are basic, and stop cutting the corners, then God himself would make sure that someone finds you. And here's what we're going to learn today, that the reason that God told Joseph, Joseph, uh, chose Joseph is because Joseph had a right heart. Now, it's important that we see this holistically because th- there was nothing that the Bible or history, we're going to look at history, nothing the Bible or history says, man, Joseph was brilliant, or Joseph was a champion, or Joseph, no, he, he wasn't. He was someone who's just honest. He was working hard to apply himself. 
He was doing the best he could to do the right thing, to keep clean in front of the Lord and honest and honorable and integrity in front of other people. But this is exactly what catches the eye of the Lord. And this is what enabled God to use him in a big way. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 1. And we're going to look at four characteristics that would help us to have a right heart, or like Second Chronicles said, to have a heart that's loyal to God, and this will qualify us. But before we go to Matthew chapter 1, there's a really important verse that will springboard us into a whole new picture that uh, many of us, probably most of us, have never seen before about Joseph and ultimately about the life of Jesus growing up. And it's in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. And I won't give you the context. You can go there and discover that. Let me just read you the verse and we'll jump off. The verse says, is this not the carpenter's son? And it's people that were in Jesus' own hometown and they're pointing to him and saying, hey, we know who he is. We grew up around him. He's the carpenter's son. But the word carpenter is what is especially interesting and what will help us to kind of broaden our thinking because it's the Greek word tekton. And the Greek word tekton is where we get the word technology, but don't just think about electronics and laptops and smartphones. Understand that the, the meaning of technology in a broad sense, in an educational sense, in an applicable sense, is a branch of knowledge that deals with engineering and applied sciences of the day, especially how they can be utilized and practiced in purposes of industry. So it's a very wide, wide uh, branch, but has a very specific focus. Bring that back to the New Testament and put it in, you know, kind of light of what we're understanding about, about Joseph. We're referring to someone who is highly advanced in the skills that they, pres- that, that, that they, they possess. They're not a novice. They're not just kind of tooling around as a hobby. They've really worked to hone their skills. And in fact, when you bring it to the building and manufacturing part back in New Testament times, we're talking about someone who probably makes very uh, fine furniture, very exquisite furniture, or here's where it gets different, someone who works in the mosaics because some of the most expensive architecture It was lined with marble and tile and mosaics or someone who did exquisite stonework. And most of the time when this particular uh, word is used in, uh, in common everyday descriptions, it's referring to someone who's not just one of the workers, but someone who has worked themselves up and now they're the project manager or they're the building supervisor. And it's important because that changes the picture in our mind when we begin to study about Jesus, and we're not looking at some rural little carpenter who's just kind of gathered, you know, some, some wood from somewhere, and he's just trying to shave and tool this and see if he can hobble together, you know, a, a big piece of furniture, a little, you know, little chair or something. And we get those kind of, those minds, you know, a little dirt floor, and, and Jesus is toddling around playing in the shavings. And, but that's not at all what the Bible tells us about Jesus. Instead, the word tecton is unmistakable that Jesus was not just this rural, or Joseph rather, was not just this rural carpenter, but he was a highly paid professional. That Joseph uh, had advanced in in skills, in the various skills he, he possessed, and he probably was a person of authority. And so, and, and by the way, the Bible doesn't say a lot about Joseph, but history does. So when we understand the Bible says that that Jesus was the the son of the tecton, 
and the son of someone who operated in technologies, it tells us so much. In fact, even there, uh, Luke chapter 2 verse 4 says that Joseph and Mary lived in Nazareth. But when you go back to history, scholars are absolutely convinced that Joseph worked in, in nearby Sephoris. Now, if you've been with us for the three short messages here, you remember Sephoris is the city that we found out that Mary's father, uh, Joachim, worked in. He was the scroll scholar in the synagogue at at Sephoris. And so uh, 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 Joseph worked somewhere in Sephoris, and, and uh, and he was part of this technology or part of this supervisor working in the architecture. So we're going to come back to the story in a minute, but let me kind of tell you a little more about Sephoris, not just to give you a history lesson, but because it, it really impacts and helps us to understand some things about Jesus and growing up and why God chose Joseph. So I've got some slides that we'll throw up just for those of you that like archaeology and stuff. But Sephoris was developed originally by a man named Herod Antipas, and he was one of the sons of Herod the Great. That's probably a more familiar character to you. But one of the things about Herod the Great that Antipas inherited, he just had this flair for the dramatic. And so his eyes fell on this little city, Sephoris, and he decided he was going to pour tons of money and intentional development into Sephoris because he wanted to make Sephoris the ornament of Galilee. He just wanted this to everybody to be talking about it. And so he did exactly that. He had architects draw up plans and he started dumping tons of fun in there, of funds. And listen, where money goes, financers go and financial institutions go. And where financers and financial institutions go, here comes the rest of the marketplace behind because that's where the money's going. And so it didn't take very long before Sephora started to take shape and it literally became known as the banking center of the Middle East in that particular time. Well, wherever, wherever things are upgrading and here comes the money and here comes the nicer buildings and all the marketplace, well, then here comes the wealthy people. And wealthy people begin to relocate from all over the place and set up their residence, which then turns Sephoris into the trend-setting culture in that particular region. Everybody wanted to know, well, what's, how are Sephoris doing it? What's happening there? And that's kind of what became you know, the, the model. So let's go back to our story now. Because historians note that most of the people that were building these fine, exquisite architectural structures, these financial institutions, these homes for the lifestyles of the rich and famous, most of those workers lived in a little bedroom community of Nazareth about four miles away. And so Joseph was one of those workers, and he would travel into Sephoris. He was a construction supervisor, I'm just saying that loosely, but he was some kind of a, a, a master craftsman with a position of authority. And again, we, we reminded that Mary's father, Joachim, he had this sacred role of not just one of the scribes or one, one of the, the priests in the, the synagogue, but he was the scroll scholar. So he was a man of influence, a man of great religious prestige. In fact, some scholars believe that as he got that position that, that, uh, Mary, that Joachim and Anne, Mary's mother, and Mary actually moved into the city of Sephoris, which would give you some context of how Mary probably grew up. She didn't grow up in this little tiny you know, village, just scratching in the dirt and people raising goats. She grew up in a society that was exploding in culture. 
that was exploding in, in the sciences of the day and in all of this gorgeous architecture and theater and all of this. Mary grew up in that, in, in a home where her father was, was the scroll scholar. Well, other scholars look and say that's probably where Mary's parents first met Joseph. In fact, it's possible, nobody knows this, possible that Joseph even worked on a project in the synagogue or worked on a project in, maybe he, he was even, you know, the, the head contractor of Joachim's and, uh, and, uh, and Anne's home. Or we don't know. But there was a close proximity, and that's probably where Mary's parents first saw Joseph and began to prayerfully determine he would make a really good match for their daughter. Now, all of that's important. Because when we understand some things about Mary's upbringing and about her parents, about where they lived, about the city that was just a few miles away from this bedroom community of Nazareth, we understand what Joseph did for a living and how he wasn't just scratching things out, but this is a guy that had worked really hard and was building a career, building a reputation, and was doing pretty well for himself. We can understand some things about Jesus' family and Jesus' life growing up and his ministry that was strongly influenced in some way by the city of Sephoris. And when we begin to understand that, we, we start recognizing, oh, well, that's why then that when Jesus, as he started his ministry, and he got to these very complex topics, and he's dealing with a very diverse group. Some of them were, you know, were farmers and were in agriculture, and some of them, you know, were very rural people. And then he's got people over here that are very religious and very high ranking, and he had the whole gamut, but Jesus was able to speak with great understanding and great intelligence and great authority into a wide range of subjects that if he just lived this small little seclusive life in Nazareth, it wouldn't have afforded him that kind of insight and understanding. But God knew exactly where to put him. Now, we're going to take Bible and we're going to take history. We're going to go back to Matthew chapter 1. And here's what we know about Joseph from history. By the way, this, these are written by people like Josephus and the like who were contemporaries, or at least relatively speaking, to Jesus growing up. So it's not like, you know, thousands of years later, people are trying to look back. A lot of these things in history, they're, they're very uh, congruent. They all agree, and they're giving firsthand insight and knowledge as to what was going on with the culture, and some of them what was happening with the actual characters in the story. So when we summarize all of this, here's what we know about Joseph from just the word tecton, but also the history that's been written there. We know that Joseph was obviously a very skilled, a very reliable, somewhat successful, we don't know how much, but a very hardworking young man. We know that he'd proven himself as a competent and trustworthy worker, and he'd done it again and again and again, and it promoted him and allowed him to kind of, you know, have more authority and more responsibility with, listen, not just construction, but these very elite, very polished, very exquisite constructions, because he's dealing with people that are very wealthy. He's dealing with financial institutions. These are prominent of the day, and he was able to do that. Not only that, when we understand that, we know that Joseph was carefully and strategically building a life. But here's what the Bible brings in back and tells us that unbeknownst to all that, Joseph's just working hard. He's studying. He's honing his skills. He's trying to build a life. He's trying to build himself a business and a, and a career and a reputation. Unbeknownst to all that, God's watching Joseph. God's watching every step. 
God's watching every move he makes, not, not legalistically, but he's watching him. The eyes of the Lord fell on Joseph. And listen, it's important for us to realize that because God's watching every one of us. Not just the big things, but he's watching the little things. Do you work hard? Do you, do you make sure to give your employer the best you have every day? Or if you are the employer, are you giving your best and are you treating those that are under you well? Are you being honorable to them? Do you follow through on jobs or when they get tough, do you look for shortcuts and because it's just all about, you know, quick and fast and profitable and are you a person of integrity or you're a person of honor? See, those are the little things that God's looking at and God's watching and God, God was watching Joseph. Here's a question that sometimes I'll stop and ask myself in various places of life. If, if you were God, would you choose you? If God had this assignment, it was very special, very important. People's lives are going to be affected by this. Would God choose you? And, and sometimes I get a different answer than I got, you know, moments before when I was saying, but, but I can do that. I just wish you'd give me the opportunity. He said, well, if I were you or if you were me, would you give you the opportunity? And it's easy for me then to say, well, not yet got some things. But when it comes to Joseph, the answer was yes. And listen, it's not because any special thing jumped out and it was huge. It's because Joseph had a right heart. Now, we're going to come back to this Christmas story. And so we know that Joseph was a hardworking guy. We know that he was building a career. By the time we get into the Christmas story, we're going to see it in the first sentence or two. He's betrothed or he's engaged to this wonderful girl named Mary. And she's from this very wonderful, influential, listen, godly family. We covered that in the first series. And all of this is kind of going according to a great plan that no, no doubt Joseph had, is, is carefully thinking through. And all of it's going great until something's about to happen. He doesn't know it. But he's gonna, there's going to be a knock on the door one day, and he's going to catch a sentence that's going to rattly just shift everything, turn it upside down, and it becomes the ultimate test to find out if all of these things that God's been watching, are they true about Joseph's life or not? And we're going to find out that they are. So let's begin reading Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed uh, to Joseph, in other words, they're engaged, but before they came together, they hadn't been intimate together, they're not married yet. Listen, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now, come on, let's be real. If you're engaged and your fiance says, I have to tell you something, you probably should sit down. Just want you to know I'm pregnant. But listen, it's the Holy Spirit. You're like, right, right. And listen, you have to understand that's exactly how it hit Joseph. And we know that because the next verse says, listen, then Joseph, as soon as she told him, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, listen, and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. In other words, he's going he's to end this thing. I, you're pregnant by the Holy Spirit? Okay, but I'm not going through with this. And there was a whole bunch of reasons why. But here's, listen to that one thing it said that Joseph, her husband, or her betrothed, being a just man. Here's the first characteristic that God saw about Joseph. He was a just man. 
And this particular word just in the Bible refers to someone who's righteous in their behavior, doing the right thing. They're virtuous. They're always wanting to do the right thing for the right reason. Or we'll just say it this way. Someone who's looking to do the right thing in front of God, but also in front of others. Here's the catch. Regardless of the circumstances. They're just going to do what's right. They're not going to do what's right because they're not going to take the easy way out. They're just going to do the right thing. And listen, when Mary told Joseph she was pregnant, but it's the Holy Spirit, Joseph knew, well, all I know is it's not mine because we have not come together yet. And Joseph knew right away, boy, this is a game changer in the negative way, in the worst way, because even if we can pull this thing together, there goes my reputation and at that point, reputation was tied, you know, widely to your, uh, to your integrity, to your religion. It's not like today where morals are kind of a side note, you know, it wasn't back then. And there goes my reputation. There possibly goes my job or the contracts I have lined up. I mean, this was huge and it was never going to go away. People did not forget that stained you forever. But listen, the Bible says he didn't just think about himself, but he was thinking also about Mary and their family. It's like, wow, I'm in the construction business. You think this is bad for me. What about Joachim, who's a scroll scholar in the synagogue, and his daughter comes up pregnant? I mean, he, he, he was scrambled. He's like, wow, everything was going great. And all of a sudden, what in the world just happened? But listen to this. He was not willing to, for Mary to go through the humiliation, listen, alone. He, he wasn't just going to throw her out there and protect himself. He said, okay, I'm, I'm not going to go through with this thing. I'm, I'm going to get out of it, but I got to figure out how can I do it so that I can be as gracious and as protective as I could with Mary. Now, here, here's the first thing. Listen to me. God needed for Jesus to grow up with a foster father who thought like that. And I'll tell you why. He needed that because one day the author of Hebrews would write to us and say that you and I are to run our race with endurance that is set before us. Why? Looking unto Jesus, not only the author and the finisher of our faith, but the one who for the joy that was set before him, listen, endured the cross despising the shame. We focus a lot on the pain and the sufferings on the cross, and rightly so. It was inhumane, more gruesome than we can possibly imagine. But there was something else leading up to the cross, and while he was hanging on the cross, that the Bible points to over and over again, and that was Jesus was humiliated. I mean, he hated it. This was, this was the most embarrassing, humiliating, degrading thing that he'd ever been through. And the very people that he'd poured his life out to. Some of them, he'd miraculously healed them and their families. He provided substance for them over and over and over again. And they're the ones saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And then he was stripped naked and he was hung on the cross, beaten and mocking signs were hung over and people in the crowd were jeering and spitting and laughing at him. The Bible says one of the hardest things Jesus went through was not just physically, it was absolutely humiliating. And he needed to be raised by a father who said, listen, this is not about saving face. This is about doing the right thing, no matter what it costs us. And here's the question we have to ask, well, how, how about us? Are, are we people that are loyal? Will we stand by other people, even when they're going through a, a tough time, even when it might smudge, you know, kind of what we might look like? It's like, why are you over there? Or do we run to save ourselves and save our reputation? Well, we don't want to get messy because listen to what Galatians chapter six, verse one said. It says, brethren, if a man stop or a woman 
or a spouse or a teenager or one of your children or one of your other relatives, if someone is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Not necessarily with the same temptation, but man, there's a lot of other stuff comes when you step into the the challenge, the messy situation, the bad decision of somebody else to try to restore them, where there's a whole bunch of other stuff that happens. And it says, paying attention, consider yourself, but listen to verse two. It says, bear one another's burden and so fulfill the law of Christ. And this is what Joseph demonstrated. And this is what Jesus needed to be around. In fact, listen to what it said there. It said, considering yourself, it's the Greek word skopeia, and it literally means don't jump in haphazard. Don't jump in just led by your passion. But listen, step in carefully and intentionally, deeply pondering, soberly pondering. Okay, what are all the traps and the pitfalls here? I don't want to myself slip and fall, but I'm going to step in and help restore somebody in 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 a gentle, in a loving way because I've been in situations and man, I wanted someone to stand by me. And he says, that's what the law of Christ is all about. By the way, it leads us to characteristic number two of Joseph. Joseph was a sensible man, a sensible man. Matthew chapter one, we're back in verse 20. It says, but while he thought about these things, and the word thought there is a really great word. It's the word enthumeomai. It's this triple compound word, but it's talking about the inner passions that cause something to keep turning over and over and over and over in, in your mind while you're trying to think through it. You know, the stuff that keeps you up at night, the stuff that you just can't get off your head. You get busy in the day and you're trying to do stuff and you find yourself, you just keep coming back. It's something that's so deep and, and stirs so much emotion that you, you, can't, you just can't let it alone till you get your way through it. That's what was going on with Joseph at this. But I want you to notice Joseph was not one to react emotionally because he could have. Culturally, he had a way out. Culturally, he could have said, okay, I don't know about the whole, you know, Holy Spirit got me pregnant thing, but I'm out. And nobody would have, would have, would have uh, criticized him at all. Everybody would have said, that's a smart move. That's a wise move right there. You can't trust someone who cheats on you before the marriage. Not only that, you've got so much at stake. You know, there's a reputation here. And that reputation is not just, well, let's get married and people will forget. They will never forget. And so everybody would have justified him as a very wise and a very righteous man. But the Bible says that he churned on it and he thought about it, no doubt prayerfully saying, what should I do, Lord? What's the right thing to do? But Joseph didn't react emotionally. Instead, Joseph thought deeply and listened carefully, rationally. Sometimes Christians think, well, you know, we check our brain out and we don't need our brain anymore once we accept Christ. That's not New Testament Bible. You need to get your brain in line with the Word of God, and you need to be thinking more rationally and more intentionally than you ever have in your life, because that's exactly how the Holy Spirit thinks. Listen to me. God needed for Jesus to grow up in a home like that. He needed for Jesus to grow up in a home that was very intentional and very systematic, not erratic over here and over there, and God said this, and God said that, and, and he, 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 didn't, he needed stability. You said, why is that? Because listen, one day his apostle Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, that Jesus was someone who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, listen to this, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. 
And when he suffered, he did not threaten. Here's the, here's the climaxing line. But he committed himself to the one who judges righteously. He thought it through. He labored over things. He listened to the Lord. And then he did the right thing. And he said, I'm just trusting that this is going to come out the way you promised me. And so here's the big question. How about you? Are you driven by your emotions? Are you driven by your passions? Do you let fear and anxiety and, and urgency and those things, you know, be the guiding factor? Or are you people that in Romans chapter 12 too, that says we are not to be conformed to the world systems, but instead we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that our life can prove what is the good and then the more acceptable and finally the perfect or the mature will of God. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 1. We're still in the story here. And we're back in verse 20. It says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Well, there you know, he's struggling with it. He's thinking, Holy Spirit? I mean, come on. How's that that real? How's that going to happen? And the angel said, no, no, this is real. Don't be afraid to follow through. Just stay with this. And verse 21, the angel keeps talking and says, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Yeshua, which means salvation. You should call his name salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. Now the writer of Matthew, Matthew himself picks up, and he's giving you some commentary to get to the next part of the story. It says, so all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet saying, he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a prophecy that was given hundreds of years before. And listen how bizarre this prophecy was. It said, behold, the virgin shall be with child. You know the scholars were reading that thinking that they weren't even thinking literally because that's just impossible. So they're trying to pull some metaphor out of it or, or some pictorial example. I, well, God must have meant this. It can't actually be a virgin because that's impossible. And yet that's exactly what it was. That she shall be with child and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Now listen to what happens. It says, after the angel said, said what he said, then Joseph being aroused from his sleep, In other words, he didn't just kind of, oh, just wake up. All of a sudden, he just sat straight up. He's like, what in the world was that? And he recognized this is not uh, just an ordinary dream. It says he aroused from his sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took to him his wife. He went and made the decision and told her, listen, we're going through with this thing. In fact, let's let's push the date up. We're going to do it as soon as possible. Here's characteristic number three. Joseph was a spiritually sensitive and an obedient man. Now, I, I don't know that we can really imagine, maybe, maybe some of you have some context, a family member or something, and, and you can get a little closer to it, but it's hard to imagine the intensity, the difficulty of the situation that Joseph was in. And yet at the same time, Joseph is thinking, and he's not thinking in self-preservation. He's not thinking defensively. He's really thinking open-hearted, like, what, what's the, how, do, how do I do this thing? What's the best way to do this? And as he did, the angel speaks to him. And listen, here's what's amazing. That as soon as the angel spoke, Joseph's heart was spiritually sensitive and he was sober enough, not cluttered by all the the emotions and the possible risk and the impact, but he was sober enough to hear what God said and to obey. And if we really want to look, what's amazing is that Joseph obeyed quickly, which tells us something about Joseph. This is not his first time that he's had to work through a difficult situation and hear the voice of God and obey. 
Because if you've ever done this before, when God tells you to do something the first time, there's usually a struggle. It's usually really challenging your emotions. First of all, was that God? Is that not God? It, was that dream really from the Lord? Or is it the, you know, the baklava I ate the night before? What, what, what's going on there? And we're kind of wrestling with this. But as you walk through this, you begin to learn the voice of the Lord. And you begin to know how to discipline your emotions and, and the flesh and, and the rationale and the reasoning and pull it in line with God. And the Bible says that Joseph obviously was accustomed to this to listening to the Lord, probably in a lot of little things. So when it came to the big thing, Joseph was was ready to meet the challenge. Listen carefully. God needed for Jesus to grow up in a home with a foster father like that. Because there, there would come a day, in spite of all the who knows how many thousands of times that Jesus needed to hear the voice of his heavenly father to know what to say and what to do in every situation, there came a climaxing moment that we have in John chapter 5, verses 19, and then later on in, in chapter 12, verse, verse 49, where, the, where Jesus would say these things. He would look at the people and say, listen to me, I only say what I hear my father say. Another time he said, I have lots of opinions. I mean, I could just sit here and wax eloquent about what I think. Remember, Jesus was studied. Jesus was cultured. Jesus was educated. Jesus had a professional bent to him. I got a lot of thoughts and opinions, but he said, I only do what I see my father do. See, and where did he, where did he, where did he get that elementary baseline example from? He got it from a foster father because that's who God chose. Let's finish the story. We're back in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. It says, when Jesus went and took her as his wife, verse 25 says, and he did not know her, means they weren't intimate, until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus, just like the angel said. Here's number four, Joseph was a consecrated man. I don't know about you, but uh, 35 years of marriage isn't that long ago that I can't remember. Uh, We were engaged for three months, but it felt like three years because I'd given my heart to somebody. We were going to be married, and I'll be honest with you, uh, I was looking forward to to the honeymoon. I was really looking, can you imagine someone who's gone through a year's worth of betrothal and then he finds out something's throwing a wrench in this thing and not only is he going to go through in marriage, but now he doesn't get to have a honeymoon for at least another, I don't know, nine months, eight months, seven months. She couldn't have been showing yet or everybody would have known. But he consecrated himself. He said, well, what does consecrate mean? Consecrate means to be devoted. It means to be committed to something. It means to be determined that you're going to follow through and finish the task as you've agreed to something. And and this is important because, listen to me, sometimes obedience is going to have a huge price tag. Sometimes the Lord's going to ask you to do something and it's going to be expensive. It's going to cost you, it always costs you something. But sometimes that something is very personal. I just don't get to do what I want to do the the way I want to do it. Other times it gets out into your practical everyday life. I'll just tell you this, and, and I, you know, I'm saying this just, just to further the example, but the Lord has directed Debbie and I to, to make shifts three or four really big times in our life, and every single time, it came with a huge pay reduction. I mean, one time to the point like, okay, but I don't know how we're going to even rent an apartment for our family. No way we can afford a house. And we didn't. We ended up living with, my, with our, our in-laws. I thought it was going to be for a few months while we figured it out. It ended up being nine months. And then the Lord provided us um, 
a, a, a place that was owned by the ministry that we were working with. And uh, boy, it was a fixer upper to say the least. But we were following the Lord and there was a grace for it. I'm telling you, sometimes obedience is going to cost you something and people don't always factor that in. And when it does, it won't be convenient, it won't be comfortable, it won't be easy. But Joseph made a decision. He was going to please God. He was going to do what the Lord said, and he wasn't going to please himself, and he wasn't going to worry about what others might say and what that might do to his reputation. He was committing himself into the hands of the Lord. Listen carefully. God needed for Jesus to be in a home where his foster father was setting that example. Because in Luke chapter 22, verse 44, the Bible says Jesus would face his ultimate test. It's right towards the end. He's within hours of the crucifixion. And the Bible says he's crying out in the garden of Gethsemane for three hours. And he's begging his father, please don't make me do this. Please, if there's any other way, please don't make me do this. And yet every single time he would come back and he said, but nevertheless, if this is what you really want, not my will, but yours be done. He had to be in a home where he watched his father, father, his foster father make these decisions all the time. And, and here's the big question for us, you know, how about us? Are we willing to make that kind of a consecration to the Lord? Not just making decisions on finances and business career and opportunity. What's the Lord saying to us? Are we willing to follow through and line up? What about the little things? What about just time in the word of God every day? What about time just to spend with the wife? I'm just so busy. I, I know that. I get that. If there's a cost involved. But what about coming back to the things that the Bible says are fundamentally important? The things the eyes of the Lord are roaming, looking for somebody who's going to make commitments to these things. What about that? And I'll tell you why it's really important that we understand this because Hebrews chapter 10, the author is going to write a couple of key verses. We've studied them just recently. But in verse 36, it says, you have, you have need of endurance. Hupomeno, that ability to stay in a situation and just keep doing the right thing and doing the right thing and doing the right thing, trusting that God's watching, trusting that God's going to be faithful. You have need of endurance so that, listen, after you have done the will of God, I can't tell you how many Christians, how many times I've wanted to, but how many Christians are praying that God would do something for them before they've done the will of God. Do it for me so that I can do the will of God. Now you got the equation backwards. It says, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You have to have endurance, which means while you're doing the will of God, this will not be easy. This will not be convenient. You'll have many, many opportunities to quit, to give up. Nope, this is too hard. We're going to go a different direction. And yet the Bible says you've got to stay in there. Verse 39 says, because we are not of those who draw back to perdition. And the word perdition is talking about a judgment. The word perdition is talking about you, you missed the opportunity. You missed what God's plan is for you. You missed what God has for you. It says we're not like those people, but we're of those who believe God to the saving of our soul. There's a reason why God chose Joseph. He has some marked qualities in him, and you can find him in the Word of God. And God needed to be needed to have a foster father that would provide a stable and a balanced environment. And God was watching Joseph. He's not looking for he wasn't looking for perfection. But he was looking for someone who had a right heart, someone who's willing to make sensible decisions, thoughtful decisions, always including the Lord. Someone who's willing to hear from God no matter what the circumstance. And then when God speaks to do what God says, not what they want to do, not what they think is right. 
and then someone who once they locked into it was willing to commit and consecrate themselves and say, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep doing this, believing that God will do what he promised he would do. And I'm just going to keep doing it until God pulls it off. Listen to me. If that's you today, you're listening, you're thinking, well, I'm not perfect, Pastor, but I'm trying to do all that stuff. Then listen, be confident. Be encouraged by the Lord because God's watching. God sees it. And I'm telling you, there's a timing. There will come a moment, you'll wake up one day and something will happen. A phone call will come, a letter will come, an opportunity will come, somebody will walk up and there's the breakthrough that you've been believing God for. None of this is in vain. God's watching you. You say, Pastor, I got to be honest though. Um, Boy, there's more than one of those categories. I'm not doing that. Then listen, repent. Just humble yourself and say, I'm messing up. And put yourself back in the hands of God, I promise you. He will forgive you. He will heal. He will restore. He'll put you right back on path because the promises, the blessings of God, they're not, they're without repentance. God loves you. And God's trying to get us back in line with him because he has this wonderful plan for us. You know, uh, we're going to sing this song in just a moment again, this chorus before we leave. Um, I'll do, I'll do what you want to, what, what, what you want me to. And I was listening to Kimberly as she was, you know, saying some things in between the song and she was saying, Lord, don't let me stand in the way. Don't let me stand in the way. And I thought, boy, what a true statement, but let me add something to it. Some Christians are saying, Lord, don't let me stand in the way. You do what you want to do. Hey, listen, one thing is not to stand in the way, but what about getting with the program? What about engaging and getting your feet on the path? It's one thing to say, I don't want to do anything to stop you. Are you going to do some things to allow God to move some things forward? And so my challenge to you today is to listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying. There's no condemnation for us as believers. God's never angry and ready to throw us out. But the Holy Spirit's constantly whispering, saying, I'm trying to get something across to you. But I need you to line up with some of these areas. And that's what I want us to listen to the Holy Spirit and surrender our heart today right here at Christmas time. We say, Lord, we're rounding the corner for a new year. And this is fun. This is holiday. But there's a sobriety under this. God's getting ready to start a brand new chapter in our calendars. We have the opportunity to say, Lord, talk to me about these little things and help me to recalibrate so that you can do what you promised you would do in my life. Bow your head. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. Thank you for being such a loving father who folds all this out. And as we dig and as we mine in the word of God, you bring things out and show us things that are helpful. Holy Spirit, that you walk us and you lead and guide us into the truth. And I'm just praying this morning that you speak to every person who's listening to my voice, everybody who'll listen to the podcast, and you'll break it down and feed each one of us with what we need. Lord, bring us the encouragement with your tenderness and your mercy and your kindness. Lead us back to areas of repentance and reaffirmation for you. Then, Lord, take us to that next level and show us the things that you can and you're willing to do. Lord, I pray if there's anybody here this morning that's never accepted Jesus for the first time, that before they leave this building, you'll give them the confidence and the courage to make that step and make that decision. Lord, if there's anybody here that it's been a long time and they've just been kind of going through the motions, but they can sense you on the inside, pulling, tugging them, saying, come in, come closer. Lord, I pray that they would make that recommitment today, that they would be willing to pray and allow Jesus Christ to become the Lord of their life in a way they never have before. We thank you for all of these things, and we trust you in Jesus' name. Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe. 
and check out our podcast channel for more messages. If you like what you're hearing, share it with your friends. For more content from Lakeshore and information on services, check us out at lakeshorecf.com.